Hi everyone, welcome to the lost generation outside of the mainstream. My name is William Hooker. I am a musician, poet, and part of this generation of artists. My goal with this podcast, which is being broadcast on its own YouTube channel and my website, williamhooker.com, is to introduce you to many of the musical artists that are outside of the mainstream and have made important artistic contributions to our culture. I have also interviewed producers of the music and many fans and supporters of this work. My guests are sharing what makes this art form unique and significant. I hope these conversations will inspire you to listen to the music, which may change you and the way you view music, which again is outside of the mainstream. Today I'm interviewing a musical entrepreneur and founder of The Knitting Factory, Michael Dorff. The interviews come out on the 1st and the 15th of each month. We are presenting these interviews, and we have so many amazing interviews coming up that you will be hearing in the future. This is The Lost Generation Outside of the Mainstream. This is a story that needs to be told. So who am I? Yes. I ask myself that a lot. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, but my, my, my name is Michael Dorf. Uh, I came to New York in 86. Got really lucky and started the knitting factory. You know, I wanted that Jack Kerouac, jazz clubby kind of experience that I would read about as a guy from Wisconsin. Um, the first name of the place wasn't going to be called the knitting factory. I was going to call it Expressoism. <laughs> because I just, you know, coffee and that whole coffee culture kind of thing and hang out and have some music on the stage. Uh-huh. It's not a lot of, at the time, I mean, had I known about Starbucks, that would be a different story. But, you, know, <laughs> yes. you, you know, the idea, you know, needed to have a wine and beer license. And I also do like rock and all that. So you know, we created a club and it had all kinds of different stuff going on. And, you know, what a lucky thing to be, you know, be able to come to New York at that time, yeah. have enough chutzpah to do, you know, to, to, to pay for a lease to get it going and, and just have, you know, an idea and then just play with it. I mean, there was a lot of improvisation and just staying afloat. I mean, us going to Europe all the time was really good for a bunch of the reasons that, you know, I know was important in people's career and, and exposure. but. The practical side of a lot of it was I needed to figure out a way to pay rent in New York and we couldn't sell enough CDs in New York so I'd bring bushel baskets and you know duffel bags filled with CDs and go to Stuttgart and to you know in Frankfurt at the museum show and just sell CDs you know because we weren't selling them in the United States, and be able to come back with 3,000 Deutschmarks and exchange them at JFK so I could pay my rent. You know, I mean, that, that's, that's that, that, was a, that was a real practical reason for, for our, our, our sort of push in Europe. And how lucky it was that you know, the European governments 
weren't building up a huge war chest the way the U.S. was. So Germany, for example, right. spending no money on military defense, right? Because they're part of NATO. We're, we're covering NATO's bills. And most of that money was going into culture and being able to support really important arts. And so that's why so much jazz went over to France and Germany and stuff post-war. And, and those cultures respected this us. work. Yeah. And us. And, 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 and you guys, the artists. I just was a, a helpful vehicle, you know, to put festivals together and, and, and create this brand that had some compellingness, you know, so I could sell it. I mean, you know, I, I know how to sell stuff. Okay. Right? I mean, whether it's wine or tickets, you know, I can sell stuff. It's about packaging and, 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 and you know, and I loved what was going on. And so the ability to package it and sell it was, was my role in the, in, in the whole thing. So I came to New York to sell stuff. And lucky for me, I was able to, the stuff ended up being these, this extraordinary creative group of people, you know. But I remember you also as a musician. No. And Bob, so Bob Appel. I remember. Really not, he's an incredibly gifted musician. Okay. Part of the reason I'm in the music business is because my friends from high school and before that, yes. grade school, were great musicians. I took two years of guitar lessons and sucked, William. Really. Okay. I, I was okay. terrible. I can't sing. I, 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 you know, I do this in the car and on tables, but I'm not a musician. Um, but I wanted to be in the band. Of course. Yeah. So what you know? What does a non-musician do? Wants to be hanging out with you know the band, especially 13, 14, 15, 16 year olds, because you know how else are you gonna get laid? It was I started doing sound and I started doing the lights and I started booking and putting the posters up. And yeah. So I became the fifth member of the band Swamp Thing, that first group that I was managing when I came to New York. Right. Putting up the posters everywhere and you know so I been a promoter. You know, I've basically been on the, the business side of music from, right, from day understand. one. Yeah. And, you know, so that's been my role. I, I, I but I'm, I'm definitely not a musician. Okay. Why do you think, why do you think most of the people have a hard time with the music that I make and people like me make? As opposed to well, the other music. For one, people people like listening to stuff that they're told is 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 good or popular, right? And so the way the generation that grew up in the '60s, '70s, and '80s, they were being told by DJs on radio, "This, listen to this." And for a little while, it was top forty. It was Casey Kasem. There was two or three tastemakers, and then it went to. You know, more tastemakers. But when we opened up the NID in the yeah. 80s and 90s, and there still wasn't a million channels. There wasn't the internet. There wasn't this, That's true. this whole... There was still big radio, mm -hmm. cable, and, and that stuff it has to pick much more popular, you know, sounding stuff that, because it came from a small funnel and was growing up, it didn't have the opportunity to look, go for creative sounds. I think today would be very fascinating and it's just what if if you know if the knitting factory sort of 
time and that, that, that symbiosis between myself and, 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 and sort of the avant-garde cats was mm -hmm. today because the internet would offer an incredible opportunity to be able to amass more fans of more eccentric music. Okay. Right? Um, uh, but at the same time, it's still very hard because now there's even more musicians making music. There's more people making music, and sure. so it's 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 really hard for someone with a like a, a, a an older brand. Even even I mean, we're this the, the city winery model. A lot of times, I say is you know we're, we're we're we should be sponsored by Viagra because we're our 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 audience is 60 and 70 years old, and we're we're working with pop stars who played in theaters, sometimes stadiums, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Yes. You know, we really big name acts that, yes. that were stadium acts that are at a point in their career where you know, they're, they're not selling records. Okay. Right. It's impossible. They, they're, they're, their audience isn't used to going out to clubs anymore. They're not... A lot of times, aware that they are even alive or doing anything, right? And and you know, and and that audience isn't doesn't isn't you know, picking up the Village Voice or whatever that online mm -hmm. source is to, to look to go out. So okay. it's a hard audience to reach. So we can't actually um, those those audiences aren't able to get that that big anymore. So an, an act that was selling fifty thousand tickets is maybe selling fifteen hundred tickets today. And when we're lucky to be able to get an act that was selling 10,000 tickets, it's here now can sell 300 tickets. <laughs> so we've, we're, we're kind of playing them at this kind of arc of their career. Yes. You know, and, and, and those are big names. Sure they are. That they are. are only being able to sell 300 tickets today. Now well, the, the good thing is, is I think with all this technology that has really kind of flattened, you know, the business and the world, um, has only made the value of live music that much more valuable. Like so, the whole interesting. How do you mean? How do you mean? Because no one's buying records. Records, you can't. Yeah. And you're hardly getting paid from Rhapsody and the subscription services, right? I mean, it's just that's true. That's really You know, where do where do a lot of artists they still make money on that 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 disc that they're merchandising, right? But they're not getting it from the subscription services, right? And so, what became the most valuable asset is that live experience, mm -hmm. that live performance, mm -hmm. and and you can't replicate that. And sitting with other people in a room watching art happen live isn't as good on a video. It is not as good on the radio, and it can't be. It can't be captured in any digital format mm -hmm. that at all gets close to the live experience. So live music, the live experience has become a precious commodity, whereas recorded music has become a, a, a almost a free commodity. So why did you choose to carry the mantle for the avant-garde cats and the free cats and the experimental cats when, in fact, what is it about yourself that, that attracted this to you? Well, because I, I could see that you really love, you really love the people you're working with. No, no doubt about it. Yeah. Really, seriously, I know. So, why did you say, this is important, I'm going to do this? In yourself, what was it? Well, 
it's probably that fact that one, I'm not a musician, but I want to be an artist. And to be able to, you know, if you will, paint a schedule with a variety of eclectic sounds that are all over the place, but hopefully will appeal to a certain sense of, of, of a type of person. And at the time in New York, you know, there was enough people to fill the, the NIT and some other venues in Lower Manhattan that could fellow, you know, appreciate that, that curatorial offering. Okay. Um, and in that sense, you know, I, that was my artistic palette. That was my way to, 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 to express myself was here's, here's, here's a, here's a, here's a schedule of, 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 of acts and in, in a setting that I think hopefully you'll, people will appreciate and in the right environment. I mean, I'm doing that now to a certain extent, but I'm definitely much more commercial. Of course, yeah. Minded in terms of what I'm doing today. Uh, but, but at the time, yeah, yeah. I, at the time I didn't have kids to worry about. <laughs> All right, then. I didn't That's have fine. college tuition. I had a good, reasonable lease, you know, from a hippie who had the building on Houston Street, okay. you know, and I was a naive punk, you know, maybe was lucky as well to have been raised where, you know, I had my bar mitzvah savings, which, you know, is the lore. I started the name factor with my bar mitzvah savings, but, you know, yeah, I was a, a kid from Wisconsin that had $13,000 in a bank account. That's, that's privileged shit. Okay, I was privileged shit. And you know what? If the whole thing was a big ass failure when I was 23 and opened it, and at 24 I had to go back to Wisconsin, I probably could have lived with my parents for a year. They would have that would have been okay. You know, that's just that's a certain security blanket that I guess I had that allowed me to go. Fuck it, I'm I'm gonna rent this Avon office and turn it into a coffee house meets you know venue and 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 let it rip. All right, but separate from all right then. You said you said something very interesting because to me, what you did, what you did was so successful, aesthetically, culturally, historically. It will never be replicated. The people that you had on your label are now icons in. New music. Well, what's amazing? So this last weekend, I was at JVC Jazz Festival, first time in oh. 15 years. Okay, okay. I, I heard Newport up there. Yeah, Maybe? Newport. Okay. Yeah, I said JVC. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I'm with George, George, I remember George. George invited me to join the board of Newport. How ironic is that? When I was Very competing ironic. so hard against, against, we become friends after you know he's 92 years old. The programming at Newport. Yes. Is Knitting Factory, you know, 1990, right? You know, it is Uri Kane headlining with, you know, Amir, you know, from The Roots. There was, there, Tim Byrne was there. And, you know, it's, it's Cassandra Wilson. I mean, you know, there's, there's, the, there's, there's our schedule. The Art Jazz Festival is now the Newport Jazz Festival. You know, it's, it's not because of age. It's not because uh, yeah, how do you see it? Well, there's one, there was a maturing of the acts. There was, you know, a, some blinders. I mean, remember the name of the festival? 
it was called the What Is Jazz. Of course, that was the name. Yeah. It was the What Is Jazz. And, you know, we were questioning. We were challenging convention, right? Right, right, right. What we knew, it wasn't all what Branford and, and Winton was saying jazz was. Right. Or what George was saying. And what George was saying. And they've moved certainly more left or, or whatever it is toward, okay. you know, to an open you know, mindset. And frankly, I think a lot of the real avant-garde are going, all right, if I'm playing for a couple thousand people, maybe I'm going to throw in my avant-garde cover of a Miles song or something that maybe people will get because I want to win some of these audience members over because they hear that I can actually play, you know, as well as then take it out, right? And so I think there's been a, uh, I mean, I saw it with, you know, people I haven't seen for years. You know, I saw a lot of people this weekend. It was crazy. And uh, <laughs> okay. I haven't seen for years. Up in um, the Adams, uh -huh. They yeah. were up at Fort Adams. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's very cool. I mean, I think it's maturing too, you know. And, and at, the, at, at that time in New York, 87 to, to you know, say 2000, and um, what's kind of moved a little bit to Brooklyn today, but I think what we had was really special. It is. It was partly a reaction to what was going on uptown in a more conservative Absolutely. you know, time. Um, it was emerging of, of influences that was happening from all over the world, you know, Middle Eastern sounds and African sounds and South American sounds that, you know, someone like Louis Armstrong was privileged to have been able to maybe get, but there wasn't a lot of scenes that were able to then all of a sudden merge all these sounds. We were really lucky. I mean, and it's kind of was post, we came on post that loft scene when this stuff was really starting to gestate, but it didn't have an outlet. And, you know, then all of a sudden, you know, you know, then it, was it, the it became an outlet. Great outlet. I'm going to name a couple of names. Billy Bang, remember him? Absolutely. What would you say about Bang? I mean, you know, he, he, was, he was a creative force. Um, he was almost a little intimidating because he was so intense on stage. And, you know, a lot of times I'd meet people in sort of a, 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 a friendship relationship before I'd see them on stage. And then it was always easier to deal with them and be like, oh my God, that's, that's what he's doing on stage. If you meet someone from being a spectator first and you see him on stage, you know, or, like Ornette, you know, which was like, I remember that. Oh as my well. God! And then you know, it, it takes it took longer to become friends because it's like you're so in awe because you had you started with the the stage relationship, you know, yes, yes, yes. as a fan. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think with Billy, it was I saw him on some stuff before working with them, him, and, and uh, so I started more in the in the awe thing. I was like, oh, okay. Whoa. Yeah. What is this? Yeah. Um, I mean, Roy, I did a lot more with Roy Campbell personally, right? I mean, because he played with everybody. Jamil Moondock. Yes, go. Wow, you know, and, and William Parker. And, yes. You know, so, I mean, like, William and Roy were there, like you and, you know, a handful of people all the time, playing with different people, you know? Uh, I mean, William played... He just kept his base there. The problem was, it wasn't. He didn't just play the knit once a night. He was playing like seven places in a night. So you know, he needed seven bases in different places. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, 
but um, uh, but Roy, you know, Roy was very approachable. You know, he was, he was such, such a sweet, sweet guy. Now another thing, I remember, and you started this as well, the relationship between rock and free jazz. Oh man, yeah. It was because of yourself and didn't you play with Sonic, Factory? Sonic Thurston Moore a whole bunch? <laughs> there we go. I mean that was You remember that? Yeah. You remember me and Lee up there all the time? Yeah. And do you remember when Spooky and his crews came yeah. in? Yeah, yeah. What were you thinking at that point in terms of what was happening? What was start what yeah, what how were you what, yeah, what, what were you seeing? Well, I mean so a couple things for me. You know, I came to New York managing this band Swamp Thing, which was a rock band, effectively. But I wanted this jazz club concert. Okay. And so, you know, it was um, the, the, the chance to have them both in the club. You know, I, I don't think, it, you know, I wish I could say, you know, I came up with the name Knitting Factory, and the idea was to knit different genres of music together. That's bullshit. I said that a lot, but that was bullshit. The, 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 the it was the fact yeah. that, you know, you came in with your quartet Thursday and Sonic Youth was playing Friday. The great thing was is the type of artists in both, you know, Thurston or Lee, or even like the band, the Violin Femmes, you know, um, Brian Ritchie, the bass player. He would come, I mean, this was, they were much more inside rock band, okay. bigger at the time than Sonic Youth. But he loved watching the jazz cats and, the, and, and watching the improvisation and, and, and was studying and would love to play with, you know, that as a, as a way to develop their work. And I think Lee and, 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 and Thurston and so many, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of you know, the, the Ira from Yola Tango. And, I mean, there are a number of rock artists from different places that wanted to learn, wanted to work with, um, felt a, a, an akin to a lot of jazz cats, and I, I think that there was a lot of collaboration there that, um, you know, was partly due to the fact that they were both coming into city to, to the knitting factory, and both were part of what I, my, you know my interests were. So it was about place, and again timing. I mean, I I, I do feel very lucky. Ah, no, yeah, go go about timing, about timing. You felt very lucky that you that you were there at that point in time, right? Well, yeah. I don't. Again, I don't think. One, I don't think we could open a a you know an alternative jazz venue in Manhattan anymore, right? And, and why know, why is that? Cost of real estate, neighborhoods, gentrification. You know, when you when you when you spend three million, five million dollars on a two or three bedroom apartment in the Lower East Side or Tribeca, you don't want a rock club or any kind of club next to you mm -hmm. that goes till 11 o'clock because it's, you don't think it's gonna bring value to your apartment. Okay. So, so that that's a, right. that's a conflict in a big urban setting. So it just isn't happening anymore. Right. You know, I, part of the reason I picked this location Why? nine and a half years ago right. was on top of the Holland Tunnel. Who the fuck was living here? I have no residential people anywhere near me. It's turned into a big buildings going up around apartments because it's so hip and stuff, and there's no more property left in Manhattan. But 
I picked it because it was on top of the Holland Tunnel. I'm like, I'm not going to have any issues getting my liquor license or community board approval. That, and there's nothing left in Manhattan. That's why I picked it. That's the same reason you picked the, uh, Leonard Street? Well, Leonard Street, no. But we were there before all the neighboring residential. But now it's all million dollar, you it know, is, three, is. four, I can't even say one million. There's no one million dollar apartment in Tribeca. There's three million, eight million. What do you think is the contribution that the people that you worked with, and I'm talking about everybody from free jazz to experimental to um, rock, and I mean, I don't mean rock, rock, I mean like rock, out there rock, noise. Yeah. yeah. What do you think is, what do you think we've contributed to this cultural well, setting yeah. that came out of Ornette and Cecil? I, and, yeah, what do you think about that? I, uh, I, you know, I don't think that this, the, the, the sort of the experimentation period, yeah. let's just call it 75 to 2000, because right? there was stuff certainly happening before me, you know, coming to New York. And, and post what we're doing, but at the time, but there was there was this this breaking down of the barriers. Again, why is all this stuff that was mid festival up at Newport? Right? There's a breaking down of the barriers. The, the what is jazz? Like you know, I have to laugh because right? that I, yeah. Go go But, Michael, but go. it you know it, it wasn't that. But we we're one of a million things. But there was a breaking down of barriers of of what is acceptable, you know, in a presentation. And we're seeing it in this ma huge mashup today, country music and folk and rock. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And, and what Bill Frizzell has accomplished in mm -hmm. terms of his bringing in this, you know, folky music into jazz. I mean, it's happening and it's, there's so many people. Bill's a great example. And, and so you can start hearing things in some, some Chance the Rapper and some of the biggest R&B players today that are borrowing from improvisation and the rock player Beck and you know some big big artists that, that are borrowing you know from from jazz. I mean I think the Grateful Dead deserve you know credit in there too. Not just Bill Frisell. I mean they were borrowing improvisational stuff. That whole jam band thing. Yeah yeah yeah. Took off. Right in that period, right? And it was about improvisation. Look at Fish has just done 13 nights at Madison Square Garden, right? There's, they're immensely popular. And their whole thing is about jazz improvisation. Well, let me ask you this. All right, then, Michael. They, they say, all right, they say, and I remember saying this to a person the other night at Lincoln Center. Um, I, was looking, I was listening to Nick Lowe. They say that, that when culture becomes more conservative, then, and then I don't know if you're going to consider this controversial or whatever, I'm asking, then you're waking up to the fact that your country is also becoming more conservative and right-wing. How do you feel about that? I mean, Trump is the biggest fucking... And, well, 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 I'm talking about the two, the two, the, the yeah, I'm but, talking about but why still he got, what's he an he got elected. It's what like, is, you know, he got elected, which right, means right. there's a whole bunch of douchebags out there. Yeah, but I mean, there's people this, who aren't thinking and are conservative. And I, yeah, I, I, I don't think we're in like 
Gestapo, Germany, yet what was happening in the art scene then as a reaction, it's impossible to compare because we're coming from a place that we really, as, as right wing as we could get, as, as kind of like scary, sick, authentarian, yeah. the press still is extremely free here. The ability, unlike China or something, but the freedom of expression for artists, not just to, to, to express themselves in, in avant-garde ways, but to actually say shit from stage in America, fuck Trump, you know, fuck what's going on. And, and you, can, you do that in China and you're arrested. Yeah, China, you do yeah. that in Russia and you're killed. I right? got you. America's still got, you know, incredible ability to be free in your expression, not just politically, but then be extremely creative. It goes way over the heads of most of the politicians anyways. I think, you know, I, I, I think we're in an incredibly privileged place. Does country indicate that? As opposed to the free jazz? Country music? Yes, it, it, because Michael, Michael, the shit we were doing was really out there. It was like slamming. It was like in your face. It was in your face. Yeah. And like you were the first one standing out there like saying, yeah, go for it. Go for it, Diamanda. Go for it. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm just saying yeah. that there aren't any people now that actually have the guts, the balls to say that to people. And I don't know if, I don't know if people recognize the fact that this has happened before. And it happened like with a lot of avant-garde experimental players. And now all of a sudden it's like this toned down, uh, I don't want to say anything controversial kind of thing. And I'm just, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm testing that, yeah, I, in a sense. I would, I, I mean, I... I don't know how you want to play. No, 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 <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not playing it in any, I'm trying to be, give you exactly how I, 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 yeah. I think, and I, I'm, you're, you're, you're bringing up really interesting sort of cultural observation point. I, 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 I'm not sure we're any more, um, the, 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 the scenes, and there are a lot of them. And, and look, at, I've, the last 10 years, I've been focusing on a pretty commercial subset of music, right? So I'm, I'm not programming stuff that is in people's face as much, unless they can sell 300 tickets. Okay, I got it. All right then, that's great. That's in, oh, wait, wait, no, great, great. I, I got a million dollar rent here. Okay, okay, let's get real. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of money. And to, to cover that, I can't have 220 paid, right? I need to have a sellout. I need to have 300. And there's enough talent that wants to play here that I can sell 300 tickets. I got I have to balance it up. If there was someone who could get in someone's face and it was <laughs> that thing, and, and, and 300 people wanted to pay $50, $60 to have that come in at them, you know, I'm all for it, especially if they want to drink some wine along with that. Yeah, yeah, that works. But you know, I'm, that I have, I'm balancing that in terms of my cultural offering right now. I'm less about at the time. I again, I, if, if we didn't do well at the bar, but it was the most intense show ever, that was that was more important to me, right? I didn't have the same financial fiduciary responsibility. I didn't have investors. I didn't have, you know. We know what they can do. You know, 
So I was able to just, I got you. Yeah, yeah. I was able to, to live it, right? And and whatever happened, if people, not that many people came, you know, I'd have to figure out a way to balance out paying rent and paying bills and keeping Con Edison and, and people happy. Thank you for tuning in. In months ahead, you will have the opportunity to hear from many more Lost Generation artists and supporters. The audio-only version is available wherever you get your podcast. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to hear upcoming episodes.